Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today is like our favorite episode of the year. We are doing our New Year's quiz, and we are joined by three of our favorite people that we worked with this year, Megan Linton, Sarah, and Andre. I don't know why I just said Megan's last name and not the others. Uh, (laughs) Sarah and Andre are Madonna, and Megan is like an academic. (laughs) It's Sarah Linton and Andre Linton. We're all Lintons, so that's... So, Andre, <laughs> not even going to correct that, Kyla, just moving past it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to pretend to know four people's last names. Get out of here, Kristen. <laughs> so, Megan, we know from Invisible Institutions and from our Donut Economics episode. She is a great, great person that we love having on the show. Uh, Sarah, everyone will know from our ethical parenting episode, which is surprising. Like, it's our last episode that we put out that was like a real episode, and it's already been getting so much positive attention. Everyone should listen to it. It's actually one of my favorites that we've done. It's so good. And Andre is in charge of our our network. We are going to be doing a quiz. Kristen did most of the work on it. I'm just here to keep track of everyone's answers. And at the end, we'll have a winner, presumably. And the prize is Kristen and I will make a donation to a charity of your choice, uh, which we didn't tell you in advance. So you may not be ready. Yep. We totally should have warned you about that. (laughs) Always forget to do that. (laughs) So you have until the end of the episode to think of a charity that you would like us to donate to. And all three of you will get to shout it out, um, but we'll only donate to, well, maybe we'll donate to all three, but we'll donate more to the winner. (laughs) Andre, your buzz in word is jurisdiction. Are you sure about that? (laughs) Now is the time to change if you'd like. (laughs) No, for me, for me, this was the word of the year because uh, even more than goblin mode, because whenever Dale Smith uh, uses it online to sort of excuse why ever Canada's federal government can't get shit done, <laughs> um, I, I love it. And I think it's a wonderful, I think it's a wonderful word. And I think it's a wonderful word to describe um, a country like Canada, which is broken in so many ways. Okay. Love it. Love it. Megan, you went with Ignatieff. Any regrets there or are we going to stick with that as well? <laughs> Are there regrets? Yes. But am I going to stick with it? Unfortunately. (laughs) Just like the Liberal Party. (laughs) Yeah! I love it. And Sarah, you went hard in the other direction and your word is pineapple. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to stick with that one too. I, you know, I just, I had to be different. How do you follow up jurisdiction and Ignatieff? You can't. You can't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you still live in Costa Rica, so pineapples presumably are like a a hazard for when you're walking down the street and you have to like... My bigger concern is I have two I have to eat in the next like two days before I go home. And I'm very slightly allergic to pineapples, so... I was gonna ask. (laughs) (laughs) They're so good, though. They're so good. Kristen, we have our guests. We have our words. Do you want to start with the first question? Sure. Okay, question number one. During this year of inflation, which major Canadian company made $1 million a day in excess profits? Jurisdiction. Can I call Loblaws as the uh, million dollar a day earner? Yes, you are correct. <laughs> nice. That Damn, was my guess too. I knew it. I second guessed myself. <laughs> So yeah, this is according to a study that um, was conducted at Dalhousie University's Agri-Food 
analytics lab, um, and it found that three of Canada's largest grocery companies made above average profits this year. And Loblaws made $436 million in excess profits. Um, Empire and Metro, two other major food companies, you know, still still a lot, $56 million and $7 million, but not quite as much as Loblaw in excess profits. I knew the answer because it makes me so furious. So I like, I'm literally angry about it every day. And my like ethical <laughs> consumption hack, since that's the theme of the show, is that I only buy on sale. I never give them my extra, like, you know, the full price money because it just makes me feel like I'm being ripped off and I, I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I found that stat really upsetting. Way to start us off with like the best news of the year, I guess, Kristen. Like, is the rest of the quiz like this? <laughs> no, I made sure to end on a happy one because last year, I think I accidentally ended the quiz on, like, mink genocide. So... <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh, Jesus. Didn't do that this year, I promise. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it was, like, a lot of effort to find uh, a good one to end on. Yeah, and actually, it's a real good news story. I'm excited for it. So, hold on. <laughs> So does anybody want to talk about inflation a little bit? Uh, it's a thing that people have been experiencing. Megan and, and Kristen, you guys are the economists on the episode, but I've been seeing like a lot of, because I hang out in left-wing spaces online, a lot of people being like, it's just money grabbing. And then like the solutions that the right is putting forward is like, we should raise interest rates and keep people poor and make it harder to find jobs. It just seems so backwards to me that I must be, mis I must be missing something, right? Well, I mean... Prices have been rising faster than wages. So in real terms, workers have experienced a decline in purchasing power this year. I think my sense has been not skewed, but like, you know, we we moved in June, right? And, you know, one thing about Costa Rica is it's not a cheap place to live. Like it, it doesn't fall into that, um, you know, classic, oh, you can go for a cheap Caribbean vacation kind of thing. That is not the case here. Uh, especially because a lot of like things like food stuff or um, if it's not grown here, it's obviously imported and that, and then there's lots of, uh, because big sustainable economy, they're big on like taxing packaging and stuff like that. So that naturally raises the price of things. But I was kind of complaining the other day to my mom about the price of clothes and shoes specifically. And I was saying how, you know, maybe I'll wait and buy, I need new pair of boots, for example, I'll buy them when we're back in Canada in the next couple of weeks. And she was kind of, she brought to my attention, she's like, no, Sarah, <laughs> that's just prices. Like prices have gone up across the board. So I'm, I'm almost curious to see, you know, when I'm back next week, if I notice it in the same way that I've kind of noticed that living here is like, oh, things are expensive. Is that just the nature of living where I live? Or is it the fact that like globally speaking, inflation is a real problem? And I'm it's kind of dawning on me that it's probably the latter, uh, which has been an interesting thought experiment in the last couple of days to to kind of go through and be like, oh, this is like across the board. This is not, you know, specific to my situation. I just I haven't bought romaine lettuce in months. I just can't justify twelve dollars. <laughs> it's so insane. Can I flag that the latest issue of Jacobin um, is all about inflation? So it's like 200 pages. And I was like, oh, no, inflation, because I subscribe. And I was like, I guess I got to read about inflation for 200 pages. But one of the really interesting things is that one of the roots of this wave of inflation 
is the conflicts in Ukraine. Uh, and that's because Ukraine outgrows the world in multiple spaces. They're number six among corn producing countries, three, three and a half percent of global production. Wheat, they're seven, uh, number seven globally. The sunflower, they're number one. And barley, they're number four. And that just like really does boost like prices, obviously, which then allows the uh, Loblaws of the world to totally rip us off. But um, as much as a lot of people, you know, in Canada and the United States are suffering, um, in some countries, it's like a big crisis because like Pakistan imports 50% of their wheat from the Ukraine. So I would just like to flag that um, finding a way towards peace in 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 what's happening in Ukraine is the key, and I hope that in 2023 that's something that can become a priority for for um, for governments to sort of push for that instead of pushing for more war. Yeah, I mean, like such a fun way that they're working to change the message and like change the solution of inflation is through you know, saying things like, well, the workers have too much power right now. And that's the problem. And the problem is um, that there's too many jobs. It, that's that's really it. And instead of addressing what's actually happening and how workers have as few rights as possible and like, God forbid, we address the actual cause of such worker shortages, which is like mass debilitation, forcing people out of the workplace. But instead, we blame the problem on workers when it's obviously a result of like war profiteering and ongoing like global debilitation. Yeah. And and industry concentration. Like, I, I don't think it's an accident that we've seen these excess profits, right? Like, uh, Canada has an oligopoly in food. Um, we've got oligopolies in housing, in telecoms, in all kinds of industries. In those industries, companies have been using the excuse of inflation to really bump prices up. And I think really good evidence for that is the Canadians for Tax Fairness report that came out this year. Um, and it finds that Canadian corporate profit margins, margins um, they went up from an average of 9% between 2002 and 2019 to 16% in 2021. So they, they nearly doubled. Um, and, you know, it's probably even higher this year because we know that a lot of companies have had huge excess profits in 2022. So Gross. Gross. I hate it. Should we move on to the next question? Yeah, let's do it. This year, Teresa Tam, Canada's chief public health officer, named what the number one threat to the health of Canadians? Poverty? Yeah, Is it poverty? Sure. I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> Megan, <laughs> Megan, go ahead. I'm not playing. <laughs> COVID? No. Jurisdiction. Inflation? In inflation? Nope. <laughs> Pineapple. Like underfunding of the healthcare system? <laughs> no, these are all great guesses, though, and huge killers. Uh, but there's one that's arguably even bigger. Ignatia. Megan. Climate change. Yeah. I shouldn't sound so happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so the state of public health in Canada is an annual report that um, the chief of public health officer always releases. And this year it focused on climate change as the largest threat to health, looking not only at the physical effects of climate change, but also the mental health impacts. It's interesting she incorporated the mental health effects because like 
like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I could totally see that as somebody who has a great deal of, you know, climate related anxiety. Like I can see how that is going to be a big problem for people going forward. Uh, in, in polling last month, um, I was really well. I guess I was surprised the, when the polling indicated that the mental health of people under like thirty five has dropped precipitously. Like it's actually gone down ten, twelve percent for things like Are you happy in your life? Do you have like enough friends? Do you have like good interpersonal relationships? Do you have hope for the future? All these markers were down like like a lot. And so, yeah, the last several years have been real hard and lots of people's brains broke in different ways. And climate, climate apocalypse and, and you know, this this impending sense of doom is, is something that really weighs on people. So something that I'm talking about in this week's episode of my show, Harbinger Society Presents, I interviewed David Camfield, who Pullback interviewed uh, on our um, telethon, the Harbinger Telethon in October. And uh, one thing that we talked about is how as much as we're going to be leaning into an apocalyptic feeling, um, it's really important to find reasons to continue to struggle and to build community and to build allyships because that gives us the energy to carry on and to persevere even in the face of adversity. Um, so yeah, so I think it's, I think those things will continue to be important um, in the months and years to come. Kristen is, is now a good time for us to talk about the future of pullback probably not like right in the second question we'll talk about it later no let's do it at the end maybe <laughs> <laughs> a little teaser for everybody <laughs> can i add an opposite vibe to andre's response <laughs> which i'm sorry uh that's just who i am but i think like it's so important also to be reading the simultaneous like collapse of our individual health um alongside what we're seeing in terms of like the expansion of medical assistance and dying and um, like ongoing austerity to disabled people. And I think that it's like, you know, we're seeing it so obviously in ways of people feeling increased rates of anxiety and dread and depression that make them fr from climate change and then make them actually like qualify for expansions to made and I think it's like really important to remember exactly what David was talking about that like the only way we'll get through this is through um, collective struggle and the impacts of ongoing global heating are just gonna expand our disabled population so drastically and we have to be building communities and movements that respond to that I agree completely and and I I saw Megan that you were speaking on Parliament Hill um, about about that uh, just last week. Is is that right? Mm -hmm. That is right. I testified in front of the it's called AMAD, the Committee on Medical Assistance in Death. Yeah, interesting, interesting experience. Terrible time. This is maybe a good time to ask. I've got a question about Maid, um, and then maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more. Question number three. Les Landry, a 65-year-old pensioner, um, has prompted some discussion about MAID when he said that what was his primary motivation for seeking euthanasia? Pineapple. It was poverty, right? It was, yeah. Does somebody know this story and want to talk about it a little bit more? Yeah. Um, 
So this was one of several stories that have come out this year. Of course, there's also stories that haven't made the news cycle, but of a older man who um, is unable to sustain himself on the low income levels for pensioners and disabled people on other forms of social assistance and are eligible for MAID through the changes that were made last year that expanded access to medical assistance and dying exclusively to people with disabilities. Yeah. And do you want to maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what you were testifying about? Yeah, for sure. So I was testifying about specifically the role of medical assistance in dying in context with um, massive expansions in institutionalization. And so Of course, we're in, as we've talked about, uh, housing and food and price crisis. And the fundamental response to this crisis of poverty and austerity has been um, forcing people into institutions like long-term care homes and unregulated group homes. And all of those we see in Toronto, of course, like the use of the Novotel Um, and the removal of people from encampments and forcing them into other forms of institutions. And so, you know, I think people really talk about the importance of freedom. And I think that that's how often people pose this choice and this expansion and made is for that we should be letting people have their freedom. But we never give disabled people freedom to choose outside of medical assistance and dying. We don't get choice of where we live or who provides our care or where we're able to shop or if we're able to go out in public because of COVID precautions. And so exclusively expanding the access to death just for disabled people is so uh, distinctly and profoundly ableist and, and rooted and really ideas of eugenics and how um, we label people if they have extra needs as being a burden. And I think we see this, you know, in our personal lives with our friends or um, families where one of the main reasons that people apply for MAID is that they don't want to be a burden to their families. Um, And so, you know, you see this continuity of people feeling like a burden and requiring supports because the government has decided to be so austere that um, we can't do it on our own. And so the current expansions of made have been a cataclysmic failure resulting in just so many deaths and so much more uh, loss within our own community infrastructure and community at large. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, So MAID is not an area that I know a whole lot about, but I've been sort of struck by the recent public discussion about it and the focus on this question of whether including mental health conditions, whether that has become a bridge too far, um, which I think is like a valuable question to raise. But it strikes me that like the underlying problem is like the vast inadequacy of our social assistance programs and things like that, that leave people in these incredibly precarious situations where like in the case of Les Landry, 
his turning 65 has put him in a place where he, like his social assistance is so inadequate that he's likely to to lose his housing and rent is increasing. To my mind, I would think the conversation should be about that, but it seems to be more about these sort of like abstract discussions around mental health. And I'm just wondering if um, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really interesting to see the amount of public um, decrying of mental illness as a sole determinant for access to medical assistance in dying. And that same energy was definitely not brought forward last year when um, the changes to to the legislation to exclusively expand it to disabled people um, with physical disabilities came through. And so it's like interesting because people can see themselves as someone becoming with depression or anxiety and can imagine a life with that. Whereas people can't and refuse to see themselves as uh, being disabled or being sick or chronically ill. And I mean, that's like, because we have created a society where those, where disability and where sickness is, is hidden away in institutions. And, and so I think it's the, the current conversation and the current focus on, on mental illness, I think allows for a bridge into people saying, this is wrong. And I think like the the cases in the media that come forward are really about a window into what it is to be disabled in this country. And I think it's that people are are grappling with both, but not necessarily understanding um, like the ableism that kind of like prevents them from imagining themselves as disabled but what the disability community has been saying is like, why are you exclusively expanding this to just to people with disabilities, just to people who are labeled with psychiatric or intellectual disabilities? Why is that expansion happening? Because we're just like, we're a group like anyone else. And so it's this strange marking. Uh, of our population as in in need of or worthy of death. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, do we maybe want to move on to question four? Yeah, is it a little bit less intense? I hope. Yeah, it's well. <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> Sorry, I'll try and be more chill. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no, no. We asked you. Yep, I, I brought it up. And this is good. It's like good to learn about and and to be thinking about for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we that wasn't that wasn't on you, Megan. That was me making fun of Kristen. <laughs> I always ask the most depressing questions. <laughs> but here's one that's uh, maybe a little bit lighter. Question four: This year, Justin Trudeau became the first world leader to appear on which popular television competition? Exactly. Oh, Megan, Canada's Drag Race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, I didn't know that. Yeah, first time. Um, the appearance on the show, this is where it gets a little bit less light. Um, it comes as there's been a real rise in hate crimes against LGBTQ2S uh, groups. Uh, but Drag Race, that's a fun show. <laughs> <laughs> 
did he he didn't get into drag that would have been i mean they would, i'm sure he wanted to but he, he his pr team knows he shouldn't be doing that right like <laughs> he's had enough costume scandals yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh no i think he just appeared in the workroom and like talked to the contestants basically oh not even like a guest judge no i don't think so <laughs> good answer megan mm-hmm Justin Trudeau, he loves to show up ceremoniously to something and do absolutely nothing else. But the man can show up in a, in in rainbow. He can sure show up in a rainbow socks. You know, that's that's it. That's what will solve our our uh, crisis of fascism. I mean, at least he's showing up. I guess, which is more than I could say about a lot of the other options. I, I don't know. That's true. It's like it's like the he's like the very best at performative allyship, and so that's mm, I mean that's kind of meaningless. But I mean it's better than Harper. It's better than better than a lot of politicians. It's better than like um, Jobbik in Hungary. So like we'll get, let's give Justin that he's like not a Hungarian fascist. Um, <laughs> at the very that's least. a pretty low bar. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I agree. No, I mean, I would tend to agree. I, and like, again, I, you know, it, it sounds terrible, but the, I mean, the bar is low enough that like, Hey, is it, you know, is there benefit to having a quote unquote global leader show like support for, even if it is performative allyship in a time when like to Kristen's point, like what we're hearing day in and day out is just horror stories about um, attacks against this community. Right. You know, like I feel like, I don't know. I mean, the, again, the bar is very low, but at least he's... At least he's doing the least he can do, you know? Which is more than a lot of other people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the least he could do is also not show up to these events, so... I I mean, I agree True. that, like, yeah, do nothing. there's a limit to how much these, like, symbolic actions can do, but I think particularly in a context where drag events are being threatened quite commonly, it maybe does matter that we've got uh, a leader that's showing up at at these events. So at least on this one, I feel like I'm going to give a pass, (laughs) but I agree generally that like just showing up to a TV show doesn't do very much. It does help society like frame how it reacts to, to hate and stuff like that. And that is um, positive. It is, it is something. Uh, So yeah, I guess I I would also, yeah, give him that. (laughs) You got to hand it to him. Okay. Well, are we ready for the next question, Kristen? Yes. Okay, question five. According to data obtained by the Toronto Star, which sector experienced the most work-related COVID-19 deaths in Ontario? And I'm going to give you a list of four here to choose from. So one is trans... Oh, wow, already. Go to it. Okay, Megan. Isn't it uh, food processing? Yeah, I'm going to give it to you. It's it's manufacturing generally, but food processing was part of that category. So, yeah. I like I, I love going through COVID deaths. You know? <laughs> I spend a lot of time on it. I don't love it. Let me be explicit. I don't. <laughs> it's the worst thing in the world. But also huge, huge shout out to Nora Loretta for collecting all the data on this. So I don't know the Ontario, like I don't know the specifics of the Ontario thing, but back in late twenty yeah, late twenty twenty, I guess, I did a piece for a freelance client I was working for at the time that looked at specifically within the food processing industry. And I was horrified. 
like I, it was extremely eye-opening. Not I looked uh, in Canada in general and like um, the plants that the, I think it's Fraser Valley is what it's called in Alberta. And then I also looked at uh, the Tyson plant in the U.S. And like when you dive into it and you get beyond just the, yeah, the like, you know, the necessity of the food processing industry and, and the meat processing industry in particular. Uh, but when you get into like the type of employees that that industry attracts and how predatory it was, you know, especially the one in, in Alberta, like you're looking at like immigrants who straight up were terrified that they would lose their jobs and the only source of income that many of these families had, like it was, uh, it was some dark stuff. Well, and I, what was it just last week in China, the Foxconn employees started like <laughs> breaking out of the facility by climbing oh over God. barbed wire fences and stuff because they've just been locked in and there's like an outbreak happening. I don't know. I, I'm not prepared to talk about that. So that might be wrong. No, I think you're, you're right that they were breaking out and that, that, that was part of, part of the fuel behind the protests. In addition to that fire that um, killed people who were locked down in um, Arumchi. Yeah. Wow. This was a real bummer too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here's one that's uh, maybe a little less dark. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Question six. Name Canada's two new premiers. Jurisdiction. Uh, Andre. It's Daniel Smith in Alberta, in the sovereign, in the sovereign country of Alberta. And it's David (laughs) E.B. in so-called British Columbia. Yes. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> David Eby, who nobody voted for. I'm not salty at all. <laughs> I guess technically some UCP members voted for Daniel Smith, but <laughs> same general deal there. Can, can I flag that this is like, this is great because this is like not to, dep- I mean, it is depressing how EB gains the premiership in BC uh, because of, um, what's, what's, how do you say your last name? A Padurai, I think. Yes. Um, so that's like, I mean, that's de- that was depressing, frustrating, angering. But there's something about politics where it's so stupid these days. And maybe it always has been, but like, it's just so dog shit. And that's very funny as opposed to like everything horrible that we've been discussing, which is so sad and like in a really human way. Politics is just like, this is where we're at at this point in in the shallowness of, of, I guess, like this point in neoliberal um, Canadian democracy. And so this is a relief. This feels great. I'm so happy that we had this question. Thanks for lightening the mood. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess if we want to be optimistic, like um, with Danielle Smith's victory, Alberta is the first province in the country to have three female premiers. So... I don't know if we give that a no. W. <laughs> it's still not a W. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. She is doing a David Cameron, so you know. I'm like anti-women in conservative politics. <laughs> I will say. Hot take. <laughs> no, I feel I feel staunch about it. You can say that. I can't say that. I have to support women no matter what their ideological stripe. Um, so yeah, like like I think we can all agree. Uh, Daniel Smith, um, rock star, girl power, uh, women to the front, and lean in. (laughs) Such girl boss energy. This is very funny to me. And uh, Daniel Smith, uh, unbelievable. In BC, it was way sadder because EB just like the NDP establishment totally 
I don't know, um, did not allow for a democratic uh, election of the new leader. But what was inspiring about that moment when when she basically won and then was just like uh, disallowed by um, really schemey stuff behind the scenes, it was really indicative of how um, a movement can pull together and then actually like um, try to affect change. And that was inspiring just to see how that happened and how apparently overwhelming it was that they just like took over the party, but then the party like pulled a fast one. So I, I want to find like a little, a little good news out of that. I, I think it was really exciting. And it's like, next time let's make it happen. Right. Like maybe that is in the future, like in, in, um, for instance, the next ND federal NDP leadership race or in another province. So let, let, let's find some hope in, in that, in that story. That's good. I've been feeling really down about it. So thank you, Andre. I I joined the NDP party. I paid my my $10 and I was excited to vote. And then David Eby became prime minister and they kept sending emails to me that are like, congratulate our new prime minister, sign our new prime minister's card. What do you want to say to our new prime minister? And I answered every single one of them with a very sassy, like not, a, it's different every time. I always speak from the heart. <laughs> good for you. But it's always something along the lines of, wish I could have voted for them. Because <laughs> I wouldn't have. <laughs> you, should, you, could, you could tease them and you could call them David Baby. Um, pull that one out. That's a good joke. Um, also, did you know he's six foot seven and that he used to like play in a band back when electro punk was like a thing, which is probably early aughts or whatever. Um, so he used to be a rocker. And he's impossibly tall, almost offensively tall. <laughs> yeah, as a tall person, I will say that he does not represent our <laughs> constituency. <laughs> and that just as I don't like women in conservative uh, politics, I don't like tall people being neoliberal hacks. <laughs> Staunchly opposed. Thank you. Finally, finally, someone's saying it, Megan. Thank you for finally saying it. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've all been thinking. The quiet part out loud. <laughs> all right. You guys ready for question seven? Heck yeah. Question seven. Which fast fashion company has overtaken Amazon as the most downloaded shopping app in the United States this year? Ooh, pineapple? Yes, Sarah. Is it Wish? No. Jurisdiction. Andre for the steal. Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> no, do they have an app now? Pineapple. <laughs> Sarah. Is it Shein? Yes. <laughs> Sarah, tell us um about Shein. What are they? Honestly, I don't know other than well, I know. I know it's a fast fashion company. I know they're based in China. I didn't know they had an app, which was actually why I didn't guess Shein the first go around. And I know that they yeah, I I mean I know from some of the people that I follow online who patronize their business so actually like buy from them that it's a you know a quick and easy company that sends clearly fast fashion you can order i feel like they have zillions of styles is the is the draw you can basically find whatever you're looking for and it's relatively quick and you know from the ones i've seen there you know they there are some hits they seem to be some nice looking stuff but also you know it's fast fashion there's some hugely problematic waste implications, sustainability implications. I, I'm I unfortunately can't tell you very much more than that. I'm I'm not a I'm not a customer. I have never been a customer, so I can't speak personally to 
to their product, but um, I have heard that it's problematic. <laughs> no, yeah, you 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 got it. That's that's it. That's she, and you've basically summed it up. It's basically like if somebody looked at Zara and said, "Fast fashion can't be worse," and Sheehan is like, "Hold my beer." <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, they're part part of the reason that you you don't know more about Shein is just that they're an incredibly untransparent company. Um, they're actually in trouble in the UK right now because the UK's Modern Slavery Act requires companies above a certain size to make disclosures about the ethics in their supply chain, uh, and they have not done that because they do not provide any information about sustainability or human rights practices. They're incredibly opaque. So in addition to being part of that like general fast fashion waste problem, you know, fast fashion makes up 10% of global carbon emissions. We throw out a garbage truck worth of clothing every second. <laughs> um, they're also really bringing backwards the strides that activists like Fashion Revolution have made in getting supply chain transparency. All right, you guys ready for question eight? Yeah. Question eight. Which Canadian bank is currently under investigation by the Competition Bureau for greenwashing? Ignatius? TD? Uh, nope. Jurisdiction? CIBC? No. Great pineapple. <laughs> Scotiabank? No, wow. <laughs> Ignatius? Megan? RBC? Yes. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> but it really could have been any of them. <laughs> So yeah, earlier this year, basically what happened is the environmental law charity filed a complaint to the Competition Bureau on behalf of six applicants. And, and the lead is um, Judy Wilson, who is the Secretary General of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Uh, but there are, there are five other applicants as well. Um, and they made charges of misleading advertising against the bank, basically because RBC has been advertising itself as making investments to address climate change and being like a green or net zero company, while at the same time, it is one of the top five banks globally that provides financial support to fossil fuel companies. So between 2016 and 2021, they have provided 201 billion US dollars in fossil fuel financing, and that makes them one of the top banks in the world for that. So they're a pretty huge fossil fuel funder, but are advertising themselves as climate conscious, basically. And the Competition Bureau has agreed to investigate it. So it might signal that greenwashing is going to be on their agenda in the future. Oh, I hope so. Greenwashing should not be allowed. I, I hate that, like, I hate that I go into any sort of, like, any company that's like, oh, we're green, or we are carbon neutral, or we've done this. And my immediate response is always, but are you? Because, like, yeah, where's the, you know, where are the receipts? Yeah. And I mean, that's what Kristen and I have been doing for the last three years is trying to show the receipts. And always the receipts are not good. <laughs> they do not match what people are trying to say they bought. <laughs> Exception being Patagonia. <laughs> yeah, Patagonia. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Should we move on to question nine? Yeah. This is another one where um, I'm going to give you four options because it'll make it easier. Um, it's a numbers guessing one. So I feel like give you some some options. Question nine. According to Qatari officials, how many migrant workers have died building infrastructure for the World Cup? Five to 10, 25 to 50, 100 to 200, or 400 or more? Jurisdiction. Andre. It was, it was definitely like 2,000 or something, so 400 or more. Yeah, so 
According to um, Qatari officials, it is 400 to 500, although they've walked that back and also said it was only 37. But you're right that like, this is a deeply contested figure. Um, and The Guardian has actually found that it, it was more than 6,500. Yikes. I, I, had a, I had a bit of a hard time. I, I like, I, always, I mean, I hate to out myself like this, but I hate sports. And so like, <laughs> even the World Cup, which everyone is so enthusiastic about, I was really like not into it. I was kind of annoyed. And then I kind of got into the way people are able to play out like revenge on colonialism narratives and stuff. And that is kind of exciting. Like I loved watching, you know, Morocco win, for instance, or whatever. Um, but even so, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically impossible to, for me to get enthusiastic when, yeah, like 2000 people lost their lives building these stadiums. Um, that's a lot of people. And these were people, you know, struggling who went to Qatar to try to like earn a better life. And so it's like super sad. Um, so yeah, there's lots of contextual reasons to just be like, fuck the world cup. This is bullshit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess I'm more comfortable with that than going to the game and shouting at the TV and getting excited. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably something that people have been hotly disagreeing with, but like, it's, a. Uh... It's a real discussion that people are having around this World Cup. It should never have been granted to them in the first place. Well, or as soon as people started to die, like, it should have been canceled. Like, can you imagine, like, not canceling an event where 2,000 people died setting it up? Like, this isn't the Coliseum. And, like, because people think, oh, well, we're not watching them die, that's okay. And it's like, no, people are dying in sports, and you're supporting it with your money. And I'm sorry if that's contentious. Yeah, it's true. I One thing I do like about this, though, is that it's really put a spotlight on how the migrant labor system works in Qatar. Like, I did not realize before these World Cup discussions that it was like that migrant workers were 90% of the workforce there. That's bananas. I suppose maybe that's a silver lining. I don't know. What sort of a messed up society are we in that like this is allowed to happen anywhere in the world? You know, like, especially for a global, like, this is one of the biggest events that happens every decade, right, is the World Cup. It happens like twice a decade, and everybody loses their mind. And it can happen no matter how many people's bodies we have to step over to make it happen. And nobody, like, yes, people are talking about it, but ultimately, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many people have to die before this thing stops. I mean, I feel like that's like, what we're living in and what we're living through. Like, we're seeing mass death in our own migrant worker communities in Canada and like in so many of our industries we rely on um, like those industries that we talked about with COVID deaths those all rely so much on migrant labor and we live in a society that relies on like deeply debilitative deadly forces to maintain our quality of living and like i think that's how we always justify it is like through well you know it's just another thing but it's part of all of these other things that we've been talking about today you know like the horrors of capitalism are just unceasing and unrelenting i mean i think as well it sort of it highlights maybe an issue that we're confronting today that at least for me, I really bought into that narrative that when I was a kid that, you know, we had been making lots of progress and 
society was getting more equal, which I think is true in a lot of ways, but it's really only true for like the middle 40% of people. Um, equality has massively, at least in, in income equality, is massively in, improved for that group. Um, but we really like have like draconian medieval systems for most of the rest of the world. And it seems to only be getting worse these days. I don't know. It brings communities together. It's like one of the very few things that men have to connect with each other on. Like sports are great. I ultimately have no problem with it. But like at what point does the Canadian team, for instance, decide not to participate because of where it's being held and what happened to make it happen? Yeah, I feel like that was really not on the table the first time they've qualified in a generation. But <laughs> exactly, right? So like it's just it's this it's this system that's set up like to just keep going. So like at what like at what one time or another we're going to have to just make the hard choice. I don't know, maybe I'm too radical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think ideally FIFA is less corrupt and just doesn't award the like the bid two countries like Cotter, but I think that's, I personally think that's the ideal because I do like, I agree with everything that's been said so far. I also personally not a huge football slash soccer fan currently living in a country where people go bananas for it. Right. Um, and like also people in my family who, who go crazy for it. But I think the perspective I'm seeing also coming from a place like, like Costa Rica, like people, this is, you know, this is the most important thing that has happened for a lot of people, right? Is to watch their team make it and they know the stories about the players and some of these players, like, ugh, I wish, I wish I had paid more attention, but like, you know, there's the, the one, um, oh, I don't even know who he plays for, but you know, they're, they're like these, these, um, there's an Egyptian player who's very famous right now. And I, Mo Salah? Is he the Liverpool guy? Yeah. Yeah. The one who traveled like four hours each direction to like train and like, you know, it's like a, he's incorporated the Muslim uh, call to prayer in his in his like victory thing. And, and you know, he's had like a really, really positive net positive impact on like the way traditional soccer hooligan type fans are seeing diversity within soccer as a sport. Yeah. Hate crimes in Liverpool have gone down massively as a result. Exactly, exactly. So like, I mean, I think in that sense, like, like, and what Kyla's saying, like, sport can have a really unifying, really net positive impact. But then yeah, you look at like the FIFA organization in general, and you're like, okay, rampantly corrupt. Qatar had no business hosting. You know, you look at even the history of, of the countries that have hosted World Cups over over time. And you're like, okay, well, why is it centered in areas of the world where frankly, Football isn't even that popular. Soccer isn't even that popular. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm like disappointed in the corrupt aspect of it, but I'm also slightly optimistic that like, hey, you know, maybe these are conversations that could have changed. I, I feel like maybe it, it was just me not being interested in the field and maybe I didn't hear these conversations have been have, being had for decades, or maybe it is, you know, a positive thing of, of the sort of globalized um, world that we live in, omnipresent aspect of the internet where like I am starting to hear more conversations of like, wow, this was actually like a really a bad, crappy, shitty thing um, that happened. And like, let's lessons learned from it kind of thing. Hopefully, hopefully, I don't know. Question number 10, the promised happy question. <laughs> Doctors in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Ontario are now able to prescribe what kind of annual passes to their patients? Ignatieff. Megan. 
Leisure? Close, not quite. Jurisdiction. Andre? Canada's Wonderland passes. Nope. (laughs) Great guess, though. I wish that was true. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody want to throw in a guess before I tell you the answer? Can I have a guess, Kristen? Go ahead. One point for Kyla. Parks passes. Yeah. So um, this is part of a new agreement between Parks Canada and a nonprofit program called Parks Prescriptions. Um, And basically, if doctors in any of those provinces I mentioned feel that their patients would benefit from access to nature, they can prescribe Parks Passes and Parks Canada will give it to them. I think that's pretty nice. That is very nice. I don't know how Megan and Sarah and and Andre might feel about this, but I'm not against paying for a Parks Pass in general because like, I want them to be maintained. But I also think that they should be accessible to all. So I feel like this is like, I don't know, like if like, it shouldn't be hard to get it. It's like, hey, can I go to the park for free? And like your doctor would be like, fuck yeah, you know, like it shouldn't be hard. (laughs) Yeah, the hardest barrier is getting a family doctor. It's like a a fun loophole for the long-term solution of a robust healthcare system and the abolition of national parks in favor of land back. <laughs> well, there is that, yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean national parks really tie back to that whole uh uh discussion of the World Cup too. If we want to talk spectacle. <sighs> God. Yeah, I guess, is there a better way for us to have national parks? Like, I'm fine with the current system because I'm, like, a little white girl. Like, it doesn't affect me. So is there a better way that we could just be doing this? I mean, you could have, like, indigenous-owned conservation areas that then also did something similar to a national park, I feel, where they, like, allowed entrance for a fee or allowed, like, tax-supported entrance for free. Yeah. And like, there's so much about, you know, national parks and who like owns land. And, but I think for the time being, it's very nice that doctors can prescribe it. And I think that we should all have more family doctors. Yeah. And also, um, like there is some evidence showing that like, the more people engage with nature, the more supportive they are of conservation. So in addition to it being something that promotes health. It's something that also potentially could provide further support for dealing with our ecological crisis um, as much as, you know, the colonial ownership of national parks are problematic. Sometimes, sometimes things are nice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that was our quiz. Who won, Kyla? Ooh, are you guys ready for, you guys ready for the winner? So I'm going to, I'm actually going to go from the bottom up. (laughs) So uh, I hope everyone uh, thought of an organization that you want to shout out or yeah, a charity, an organization, a cause that you would like us to donate to. And we're going to link to all of them in the show notes if people want to support. So we're going to start with Sarah with two points. Sarah, what, what organization would you like to shout out? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. I, um... Like I was thinking about it, I was, you know, let's tie back to the fact that I was on your parenting episode. Let's do a kids related charity. Growing up, we always did kids help phone. Like that was what my siblings and I supported. So let's say kids help phone. Nice. Nice. Always a safe bet. If you're not sure and you're put on the spot, you're like kids help phone. They're great. They always need help. Animals also (laughs) also would be positive. But yeah, kids help phone. Let's say that. Especially in light of like depressing statistics about the mental health of our children, right? So let's 
let's support children's mental health. Love it. Okay. And then in second place, we have Andre. Andre, with three points, what organization would you like to shout out? I would like to shout out um, an independent journalism initiative. I don't know if this is appropriate. You can tell me if it's not. But um, the Rover in Montreal is uh, a project from Chris Curtis, who used to write for the Montreal Gazette. But he was just too dope for them. And so he uh, pulled out and started um, basically like just the best kind of independent reporting, talking about indigenous communities in the north of Quebec, like going and like hanging out with them, right? Um, hanging out with unhoused people in Montreal and like telling their stories stories, um, hanging out with immigrant communities that suffer from police violence and, and the xenophobic laws we have in Quebec. And I've just been so impressed with the work that him and his very small team do. And um, this, uh, the rover has like, you know, like some hundreds of people supporting it, but its annual income is probably 80 grand or something. And they, they need supporters. Um, and the sort of essential reporting that they're doing is so moving. And I like, I I, uh, I I fucking wept reading a story last week and I was like, whoa, I'm not used to being affected by reporting like in this way. So um, I've been thinking about the work that Chris Curtis and his team do a lot lately. And so if it's okay, um, I would love the like uh, $13 a month. Is that too steep? Uh, that's the opener uh, sub stack like support level. <laughs> Happy to shout it out. Yeah. Uh, relieved that you didn't win. <laughs> I can sign up for $13 a month for another organization. <laughs> but other people definitely should. And I'm going to subscribe at the very least, which is always good too. Absolutely. And then our winner is, of course, Megan, Megan Linton, uh, with four points. So it was a pretty close game, actually, all. Uh, and Megan, what organization or cause would you like to shout out today that Kristen and I will donate to? Wow, just absolutely honored with the title. <laughs> so grateful. I would like to, you know, as my uh, clue or buzzword was Ignatiev, I would like to shout out the liberals. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know how far I can get into this joke. I hope people know. Everyone go support the liberal party uh, per Megan. Yeah, that yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. No, I want to shout out the Sunshine House, um, which is a community drop-in and mobile harm reduction van um, in Winnipeg. And uh, Winnipeg doesn't have any forms of uh, safe injection sites. And their current premier, Heather Stephenson, is another one of our, you know, unelected ladies. We'd love to see it. Uh, but the Sunshine House does amazing work on supporting people who use drugs to be safe and alive. And we need that more than ever now. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. We will share the link in Kristen and I. I mean, I'm we don't make any money from this show. This is just coming out of our pockets. Well, what, $50, Kristen, each? Sounds good. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. And we'll, of course, link to all of these in our show notes, which people can find by opening the app that you're listening to this in and reading it. I know, right? <laughs> so convenient. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. This was as always, a great joy. And Kyla, did you want to talk about the reboot or no? Oh, yeah. I forgot. Kristen and I are rebooting the show. What? <laughs> what? I know. Yeah. Andre, Andre knew, but I don't think Sarah and Megan This is knew. the first I'm hearing of it. What's, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, Kristen and I are going to be taking a little break, so people will not be seeing us in your feet. I mean, we say that, and then I think Kristen's already set up an interview for the new year, but whatever. (laughs) We we are planning to take a break. You will not see us in your feeds uh, from January till March, except for maybe occasionally with a bonus episode, and Kristen and I are... Kristen, I think it's fair to say that we don't believe in ethical consumption, and so to make that the center of our podcast just feels icky at this point. Yeah, I feel like we, over the last three years, have We've explored different aspects of ethical consumption, and I won't say that I don't believe in it because I do still think that like your consumption can be grounded in ethics as much as possible, um, but I don't see it as a pathway to change. I don't know that we ever really did. Maybe I bought into it a little bit more at, at the beginning, um, but so the new podcast, we're still, we're still figuring out the format, but what we're going to do, I think, is we're going to ask is this a solution to our problems? And we're going to spotlight a different solution, sometimes real solutions, sometimes false solutions, and we'll sort of examine to what extent they can actually help. So things like geoengineering, is that good or bad? Things like (laughs) ethical consumption will probably be our first episode. I want to talk about land back and just like the, like, how, how can we take these solutions and what, first of all, will they work? And in order for them to work, what would it, take? Like what, how can we implement this? What would it look like? Futurism is like my absolute bag. So I couldn't be more excited about this. This is going to be, this, this reboot is going to be a lot more of like a Kyla's heart will be in it a lot more, which is something that I'm very excited about. Um, But yeah, the idea of like, I don't know if anyone listened to our episode on 2040, which is this documentary that came, it's like my favorite movie that came out in Australia. And it's just this science teacher looking at all of the solutions that we have right now and what it would look like in 20 years. And that's kind of like what I'm going to bring to this, this little, this reboot. (laughs) Well, you guys, so I just want to comment, like, um, that's, that's so interesting to get to the point where you're like wanting to sort of reframe how you approach um, storytelling and education, which is what the show really does through the interviews that you do. Um, and so I think that's really awesome. Uh, yeah, no, this makes a ton of sense. Um, wh- how many episodes, like after you guys re- release this quiz episode, what number will that be for the show? This is episode 101, baby. (laughs) No way. Yeah, our plan was to end at 100, but of course we always have bonus episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, episode 100 was our water episode, which is coming out. um, It's coming out in two days after our our recording, so listeners will have already listened to it if you're regulars, or you can go back and listen. But it's our water episode, which is the last. It's funny because we haven't done a proper like deep dive into an industry in a long time. And so, of course, the last episode that we do that's a proper episode is like, hardcore, like, look at the problems here. Why are things so messed up? And I did it. So it was uh, erratic. (laughs) (laughs) Water's a huge topic. So it was a really fun episode. That means that you guys, you guys have reached the um, hallowed uh, century club of Harbinger shows, which is that rare few who have reached 100 episodes. So I think that's like totally phenomenal. And it's really it's like the perfect place to go out. And I even like that you're going to leave at 101 because that's just a way of being like, yeah, stop at 100. No, we're doing one more. And then we're stopping. Um, <laughs> so I think it's perfect. This is really exciting. And what a cool way to start the new year. Thank you. Thank you, Andre. And I'm going to take this opportunity to shout out the Harbinger Media Network in general. Megan has a show that people can check out, Invisible Institutions. And if listeners want to support the network in general, uh, you can go to harbingermedianetwork.com slash join. Two, two things. Number one, Megan's show, 
Invisible Institutions did have this incredibly uh, coherent season of seven episodes with topics like exploring the Manitoba Developmental Center, uh, lifetimes and long-term care, sex and reproductive justice, group homes, and congregate confinement. And it's like, it was really well received. Lots of people heard about it, but lots more should hear about it. Megan and her very small team of like one other person basically did a next level documentary podcast. And um, it's phenomenal. It's harrowing. It's like even more depressing than this episode of Pullback. It's so good, you guys. Listen right now. <laughs> I feel like one of the most slept on um, documentary podcasts in Canadian, uh, in the in the medium in Canada. So people should definitely check it out. No joke, um, Megan. And you know I'm not just like being whatever, like silly. Like I, I really think it's a spectacular show. Um, and then I do just also want to flag that if people want to support the Harbinger Media Network, it is a community of 50 shows across the country. and. Um, it's so cool because we have shows like Pullback and Invisible Institutions. We have shows from lots of independent journalism spaces like Press Progress, The Hoser, The Breach. Uh, there's some big names like Paris Marx's Tech Won't Save Us, Rob Rousseau, Hillary Agro's uh, Bread and Poppies. And um, it, it's such a cool community, but uh, we we love it when people actually throw us a few bucks a month just to kind of help this experiment in community building uh, go because we don't actually receive any dark money. We don't even receive like any academic or union funding or anything like that. So we support. We depend on the support of um, of listeners of of shows on the network, and if people listening to this right now uh, want to support this sort of community at the five dollar a month level, we are offering fifty percent off uh, a yearly membership, um, five bucks a month, and we send new members a free book from Between the Lines, some stickers, a postcard, and a pin. Uh, it's kind of some fun exclusive merch, uh, Harbinger merch. So check out harbingermedianetwork.com slash join to find out more about that. Oh, love it. Thank you, Andre. And thank you, Sarah, for joining us and taking time away from your beautiful children. We really appreciate you too. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been great fun again. And uh, thanks, Megan. Yeah, thanks, everybody. <laughs> thanks so much. And thank you for that Hyatt, Andre. You bet, for sure. All right, everyone, thank you for listening. And we are excited to see you in the new year. New year, new podcast, right, Kristen? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs>